All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. Hey, you guys are the yeah. You guys are the Canadians of the church. That's for sure. There's a lot of snow out there, and so I'm sure some people are at home in their beds making some excuse about their winter tires. I had over a foot of snow at my house in Joe Rich. It was coming over the bumper of my car. It was so great. But February's tomorrow, so it's going to be spring soon. Are you guys excited for spring? I've had it with winter. I'm done. I see all these Instagram pictures and Facebook pictures of my friends in Mexico, and I'm so happy for them. <laughs> Anyways, let's open in a word of prayer. Jesus, we are so grateful for our church, God. God, we love this family that you've given us. We love to be together, God. Thank you that this is my spiritual home, God. That within this community, God, that I, I learned my, my spiritual gifting, God, that we learned how to dream, God. We learned that you are able to do anything. Jesus, you give us courage when your Holy Spirit arrives. So Jesus, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just blow through our hearts this morning, that your spirit of truth would reveal the truth of your word. God, we pray that the wisdom of the Almighty King would be exemplified in this place, God, and that the wisdom of man would fall away. We love you. God, we ask for your direction and your guidance. Amen. Why don't you guys grab your Bibles to Nehemiah 4? We have a lot to read this morning. Sometimes if you just hear somebody read, it's easy to just pass it over or not pay attention. But when you're reading yourself, it sort of allows your brain to process it in a couple different ways. So grab a Bible in front of you. We're on Nehemiah 4. Things are really heating up in the book of Nehemiah. Things are going to get pretty rowdy right about now. All right, let's get into this. When Sanballat had heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. This is the same guy who gave us trouble last week. Remember him? This was the guy in Nehemiah 2 who was angry and sort of like sending out word that this was happening. He's just been not a very nice friend to Nehemiah. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbed up on it. If he would break it down, break down their walls of stone... This is mockery. And if you were to read most of the commentaries about this passage, they would say that every time that God's enemies mocked the Jewish people, it was always a sure sign that they thought that God was on the move and that God was on their side. So this is sort of like, oh no, here we go again. This is coming all over again. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. This is Nehemiah. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So now it moves on from insults and mockery to actually threats of fighting. They're starting to organize, and they decided that they're going to come up against them. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet a threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. 
Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, they'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. So it's progressing from mockery to threats of fighting, now to death threats. It's getting really serious. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at the side as he worked. But the men who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Wow. Things are getting pretty intense. And there's a lot of threat of violence and Even the people from Judah are coming and begging them. It says 10 times over, which is a term that refers to just over and over and over, saying, you guys need to protect yourselves. You guys need to leave. Is this worth it? This is impossible. Everybody's getting tired. Why are you even doing this? And the response of Nehemiah is telling, every single time there was a new challenge, which happens over and over and over, his response was this, to pray and to get back on the wall. Every single time, pray get back on the wall. Trust God, get back on the wall. He received a calling, so just get on with it. This is so cool. See, if you're going to serve God, there will be opposition. And I think that this is a truth that we are blind to in the West. I think we assume that in the West, if God is on our side, if God has called us to something, that there will be automatic lack of opposition. We've heard the term a lot, that the safest place in the world is within the will of God. And although that may be true on a number of levels, it surely does not mean that there will be no opposition. It's always shocking, I think, when you notice a blind spot in your thinking, a blind spot even in your theology, when you look back on your life and say, what was I thinking back then? Sometimes our brains get so focused on where we're at and the way that we think now that when we have new information, we can't process it. Let me show you this. This is from America's Funniest Videos. Okay, for the fifth time, Y-E-S spells yes. Yes. E-Y-E-S spells... I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I never heard of such a word. So what is it supposed to spell? Enlighten me. I'm freaking lost, okay, for a seventh time. We can do this all day, man. I cannot know something I don't know. 
Y-E-S spells yes. E-Y-E-S spells? I don't know. <laughs> I have no freaking idea. I'm clueless. Okay, so one last time. Y-E-S spells yes. E-Y-E-S spells? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I'm subjecting myself to this abuse. I told you it's in E-S. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay, I'll just spell them out with your head. E-Y-E-S. What does it spell? Yes. <laughs> okay, now people, he stayed okay. a kind. Spell it about a pepper. E-Y-E-S. <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> Oh, it works every time. <laughs> oh, my son Owen called my dad and we did that trick on the phone and it worked. They couldn't even sleep, they were laughing so hard in their beds. <laughs> it's very hard to discern areas of cultural bias when you previously hold to really strong opinions. When new information is introduced, sometimes it's hard to mix the two. And it's very hard to discern entire biases of a culture or a time period where we all live in right now. For example, it's so hard for us to imagine that those in our church history very recently turned a blind eye to slavery. We look back upon that now and we say it is so obvious. How did you get it so wrong? But it was such a part of their society that they had such a cultural blindness. And we have a blindness right now in the West that many people would say in the East that should be so obvious to us, but we've been born in this society. We've been born under a certain understanding with a certain perspective that we've had since birth from our education at school, from what our parents have taught us. So it's hard to understand anything other than that truth. Let me explain. Every single person in this room is, is a product of the Renaissance. Greek philosopher Plutarch explain this. He was the one that sort of invented a lot of the thought. This is where we make the fulfilling of individual potential the primary goal of existence. In other words, you can achieve anything if you believe it. If you set your mind to anything, you can achieve it. That within us as people, we have unlimited potential, every one of us. This is Renaissance thinking. And this is also the root of the American dream where the self rules as king or queen. The American dream is rooted in this. We can do anything that we set our minds to accomplish, that nothing is impossible for us if we just truly believe it. James Treslow Adams is the one who coined the term American dream. And this was in 1931. This is what he said. It is where each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest of stature of which they are innately capable. In other words, from within us, we're capable of anything. And the fullness of stature really has a lot to do with wealth and security and comfort, that each one of us has the ability to do anything. This is the American dream. The problem is, is that this American dream, this Renaissance thinking has really leaked into our gospel. 
And I believe that we have a self-conscious belief that if we are faithful to God, that if we pursue Him, that it will go well with us financially and materially. And sometimes when troubles come our way, it is God either correcting us or saying, you need to follow me closer. This is the old covenant, and it's really leaked into our new um, perspective and our New Testament life. And if we are into fulfilling our call that he has given us, there will be opposition, but oftentimes we view that as God being disappointed with us or God leading us in a different direction. The problem is, is that this directly opposes Scripture. We need to realize that we have blended this Renaissance thinking with the gospel and we've created this sort of hybrid that allows us to have two main errors in our lives. For starters, it leaves people hurt and discouraged and even angry with God when opposition comes. We think, God, I'm doing this for you. Why in the world is this coming up against me? And we have hurt. If you read Facebook, every single day somebody's posting some hurt about God. God, why did you allow this? I'm mad at God. He took this away from me. He did this to me. We have a totally different perspective than Nehemiah. Number two, we abandon our calling when we face opposition because we misinterpret it as the leading of God. You think this is opposition. This is God saying, do this or do that. I hear this all the time from pastors. Things were going so great in the first year. And then this happened and this happened and this happened. And they simply drop out because they misinterpret it as the leading of God. But in the New Testament, no teacher, including Jesus, ever promised material wealth as a reward for obedience. It is not a teaching in our scriptures. He never promised moral safety. He never promised comfort. As a matter of fact, when he called the disciples, he said, come after me, but look at me. I'm homeless. I don't even have a home. I'm not going to guarantee you any sort of wealth. You come after me, and that's not the case. Jesus said this. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Whoa. I am sending you directly into the evil. You are the light of the world, and the purpose of the light of the world is to go into the darkness of the world. There is opposition when sheep are amongst wolves. This is the call. Jesus said that they will hate you on account of me. That is some, that is some opposition. Hate. So why do we feel so unjust when it occurs? When the very call that he gave us actually comes forward, we say, God, why are you doing this to me? You must be leading me somewhere else. I'm hurt. See, Nehemiah expected opposition, and it radically altered his response to the opposition. You see, we are in a war. John 10.10 says the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a war, and a war always involves opposition. Paul says that we are citizens of heaven, and the Jewish listeners would have understood a citizen as a retired soldier. So when you are in heaven, you are retired which means when you are on earth, you are a soldier. If we're going to serve God, there will be opposition. It's a guarantee. Nehemiah expected it, and he got back to work. And so I wonder sometimes if ministries are cut short because of opposition. I wonder sometimes if in our own personal lives, as we pray for people and with neighbors and with friends, or God has called us to make an impact in a part of the world and there's opposition, we simply drop out thinking that it's God saying, no, not here. 
but we should always be expecting opposition in every area of our lives. If you raise children, you are in a war. <laughs> there will be opposition. If we're raising children to love Jesus, the fact is, is that we are raising them to be sheep amongst wolves, and there will be opposition there. That's okay. This is the call of the follower of Christ. I wonder why the church in the West is dying, but we hear stories of China and the East just absolutely booming. I wonder if it's because we're unwilling to pay the price. If we are unwilling to sacrifice our Renaissance thinking, the American dream thinking, where we are actually putting comfort and safety as our God and not willing to pay the price like Nehemiah did. Going to India was so inspiring for me. We got to go and see the children's homes, and I was completely shocked by what I saw. We were, we were there for the 25th anniversary, and all of the founding fathers of these orphanages were there, and the Darkims were there. They were these couple that started the shanty home, and they were so inspiring. I got to sit down in a room with them. It was so hot out, and they were drinking water, and I saw them go up, so I followed them, <laughs> and I got to talk to them for a couple of hours. I asked them how the home got started, and what happened was there was a leper colony, and they knew about it, and they knew that the buildings were up for grabs and the piece of property, so what they did is they acquired the leper colony, and they moved their two infant daughters with them to the leper colony to take it over for the first children's home 25 years ago. But as they got there, they realized that the lepers were not leaving like they thought they were going to. And so they were raising their children amongst these lepers, And one morning, as they were bathing their two daughters, they found all these red spots all over them. And Mrs. Darkeem just started bawling that her daughters have now got leprosy. And I was just listening to this story in shock, thinking, how in the world could you put your kids in this sort of risk? Why would you do this? It turns out that it wasn't leprosy, that it was a terrible bedbug infestation. And they all had bedbugs. I was amazed by their perseverance, and that home today is there because of the Darkeems. There's been hundreds of kids that have met Christ in that home because of them. So many kids have received love and nourishment because of them. They were willing to pay a price that so many of us would never do. And I hear this line all the time. I hear it in every circle, in every pastor conference I go to. It's this. It's that my family and my children come first. And that sounds right, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, that's right. And I do agree. As parents, we need to give 100% to our families. As grandparents or as people without children, we have to support our kids 100%. We have to put everything we have into raising them. I agree. But they are not first. We should not be putting them first in any way. We make their safety and their comfort our God. The whole drive of our existence... But Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now let me explain. That's a hard word. Jesus often uses hyperbole or extreme exaggeration to drive home a point. For example, he says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He says it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. These are examples of hyperbole. He's making a point. Jesus is saying this here. He's saying the point I'm making is that I must be your first priority and that everything else must be a very far off, distant second. Everything. 
You see, our children, they don't need a bunch of helicopter parents who are trying to keep them safe. That is not what they need to meet Christ. That's not what they need to thrive in this world. Our children need to see a movement worth dying for, worth sacrificing for. They don't need to see a movement that further perpetuates the lie that they are God's and capable of anything apart from God. They don't need to see from us the furthering of the American dream within them. They don't need that. They need to see us sacrificing and trusting them to the Almighty God, their true Father, their Heavenly Father, the one who's actually capable of protecting them, not us and our feeble efforts. Jian is a doctor in China, and he left his thriving practice, and he moved into the projects And he took his wife and two kids to provide these poor villages with medical care. And this was extremely risky. And when he was asked about this situation, this is what he said. He said, our families understand our moms and dads are in prison for their faith and have taught us that Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion. You see, our children will copy our devotion. If we're devoted to them first, they'll be devoted to themselves first. If we're devoted first to Christ, they will be first devoted to Christ. David Platt wrote an amazing book called Radical that I just read this week and is very influential in this message. He said, if you follow him, you abandon everything, your needs, your desires, and even your family. He's number one, number one. One Christian in India named Christopher Love who was sentenced to death for his faith in Christ, wrote a note to his wife. This is what it said. It said, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. And as he walked to his death, they paraded him through the streets, and he was walking and he was singing praises, and his wife came up beside him, and she started to applaud him as he walked to his death, and she supported him the entire walk completely supportive of his call. This seems so crazy, and many people will say, this is a horrible decision. Why would you lay down your life for this? This makes no sense. Jesus teaches a parable where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had to buy that field So this is a man who found something that nobody else knew about. And he, in front of the world, sold everything and gave up everything. And people would look at him and assume, why are you doing this? This makes no sense. You are making a terrible, terrible mistake. But in the end, you know that you're actually not giving anything away at all. In the end, you know that you are gaining absolutely everything. Jesus is saying, what I have is infinitely better than everything that you have combined. He's saying, abandon the stuff that you hold on to. You see, if we walk away from Jesus, or if we decide to hold on to what we have and not surrender, and not to give him our lives, we're walking away from infinite and unbelievable riches. Sometimes it feels like we're making a sacrifice, but we need to remember that it is no sacrifice. That treasure hidden in a field is infinitely better. Christopher Love knew that his sacrifice was not a sacrifice at all. 
You see, when we actually surrender our comfort, money, our loved ones, or anything else on earth, nothing can be taken away from us because we've already surrendered it. We've already given it up. This last fall, we lost one of our young adults. Lauren Kruger just passed away suddenly. She got an unknown illness, and it went really, really quickly. And it was just a massive shock to our community. And when I met with the family, I was really, I was really in a state of mourning myself, and, and I was really sort of, I guess I was, just, I was really sad, and I just really didn't know how this was going to go. And as they came into my office, I was overwhelmed by this sense that heaven was somehow invading earth. They had this peace that was so tangible and so real. And as we prayed, there was just this overwhelming sense of, it's in a strange way, joy. And here's the beautiful thing is that Brian, who's her father, has felt since being a child that his call in his life is to introduce people to Christ. And they as a family have surrendered everything to Jesus. They've given it all up. They chose to do that. Like Nehemiah, they expected opposition. Their kingdom is heaven, and this earth is just simply the place where we serve. And this is their perspective. And so as we're sitting there grieving this loss, they have a peace that passes understanding in the midst of grief. This last week I called them and I said, like, how are things going? How are things going with, I guess, your call? And he said, since the death of Lauren, our efforts to reach the lost have increased to a fevered pitch. He said, we're doubling our efforts. This life is so short. You see, they expected opposition, and they got back on the wall. It doesn't get any better than this. You see, if you pursue the American dream, and your life is about comfort, security, or pleasures, the fruit of that is discontentment. The fruit of that is anxiety. I was with my grandfather shortly before he passed away, and he was explaining how everything in his life is gone. His reputation doesn't exist because everybody that knew him is gone. Everything that he has is gone. His wife, his friends, it's all just gone. Slowly, one at a time, everything that he held on to was being taken from him. And a few days after his death, we were going through his garage and taking all of his tools. This is the plight of man. The American dream leads to anxiety. But if you pursue the kingdom of God, the calling that he's given to you, you've already surrendered it all. And the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It is a joy that absolutely does not make sense. It is a peace that transcends understanding. You see, we desire the power of the early church. Don't you guys read the book of Acts with some jealousy? The amount of miracles that were happening the fact that every single day people were added to their number, the fact that they gathered in a group like this and they took all the material goods and they compiled them and then they distributed it and nobody had need. A city like Kelowna with perfectly equal distribution, it's a beautiful model. And we look at the early church and we're like, God, we want that. We want that sort of revival. But 300 years before Constantine and the Edict of Milan, the church, all that they knew was murder, and opposition. They dug nearly 600 miles of catacombs underneath Rome. These are what they look like. And they would meet in these catacombs, and this is where they would have their church services. They expected opposition. It's all they knew. And this is where they met. It also happened to be 
the place where they buried tens of thousands of Christian martyrs. The catacombs are lined with bones. This is the early church. Opposition was expected, but they were not contending for this kingdom. And it was in this soil that revival broke out. See, after Stephen was martyred, those who were scattered preached the word. And as they scattered, this is how Judea and Samaria met Jesus in the first place. It was through Stephen's death that revival broke out. We will have to risk everything, our comfort, our possession, in order to reach the one billion people in this world that don't know Christ. A couple named Ed and Patty were in their 70s and they retired from their their occupations. And this is what they did. They moved to Nigeria to cook for orphans. What they knew how to do was cook. And so that's what they did. They moved to Nigeria. And then they started to just follow um, major world events and people that had massive need. So they moved to Sri Lanka. And in the middle of rebel fighting, they were just cooking for those who needed food. And they were sleeping underneath military trucks. And they asked Ed, they asked him, what is, what's his deal? Why is he doing this? And this is what he said. He said, what else am I going to do with my retirement? You see, they believed that they were created more than just the Christian spin on the American dream. They asked Patty, they said, how are you doing with all this situation? Don't you just want to live in a retirement home or something? And she said, it doesn't really get any better than this. Wow. In the, in the Batak tribe in northern Indonesia, a missionary couple showed up to share Jesus. This is an area that's 100% Muslim. And they were quickly murdered and cannibalized. And years later, another missionary arrived And this time, because they saw the perseverance of those and the obvious love that they had for them, they listened to this next one. He had instant credibility. He shared the love of Christ. The entire village received Christ. Now there are over three million Christians amongst the Batak people, all because of those first two that decided that they were not going to simply live the American dream. Revival requires sacrifice, and it's not just overseas, it's in Kelowna too, because discipleship is messy. Discipleship is a hard call. We are a church here in the middle of Rutland, and I believe that God placed us here. There are a lot of hurting people, there's a lot of families that are broken, there are a lot of kids being raised without any sort of father figure, and imagine if their father could be God the Father. Like, this is an area where our discipleship will have a cost. It's always messy, and it's always slow. Jesus said, if you follow me, then you serve people. This is the model. When Shane Claiborne went and visited Mother Teresa, he assumed that she had leprosy because her feet were so mangled. And he asked one of the nuns, he said, does she have leprosy? Why have I not heard about this? And she explained that every single time a box of shoes came in, Mother Teresa would be the first one to the box, she would dig through the shoes and take the very worst pair so that nobody else would have to wear that pair. So she's been walking on terrible shoes for years and years, and her feet have been disfigured as a result. This is sacrifice that God calls us to. Two nurses from the U.S. were working in an AIDS clinic in Haiti, and one got poked with an infected needle, and here's her response. She said, we're glad it happened to us and to nobody else. And she said, if these clinics are used by God to lead someone to Christ, then it was all worth it. It is a complete rethink on the way that we imagine the way that our lives are to be spent. If we're 
to imagine our lives to be spent on sacrifice and expect opposition, then we are free and nothing can touch us. It's when we take the American dream and spin it into the gospel that it creates anxiety within us, unmet expectations, and anger toward God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, summed up the call of Jesus as this, to call to abandon the attachments of the world. You see, if you follow Jesus, you will face opposition, and this flies in the face of the American dream, but it fits perfectly with the gospel. Jesus calls us to come and die to find true life. This is the gospel that we need to teach. This is the gospel that our kids need to know. In Indonesia, graduates from seminary there look really differently. In order to graduate, they have to plant a church with 30 converts to graduate from seminary. Except for this is the largest Muslim country in the world. And if you were to go to one of their graduations, every graduate would have planted a church. And they say it is the most unbelievable, joyful event you can experience. But every single graduation, they also have a moment of silence. It's a solemn part of the ceremony when they remember the classmates who died at the hands of the Muslim persecutors that year. This is the cost. Revelation 12:11 said they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is the soil of revival. It's the treasure hidden in a field, and it is no sacrifice. It might appear to be the ultimate sacrifice, but we know far better, don't we? We've found that treasure. We know its value. John Patton went to an island in the South Pacific. This is a place also known for cannibalizing people, and all of his friends in his church tried to convince him not to. They said, why are you doing this? Like, your life here is great. Don't go. Like, this is ridiculous. This was his response. He said, if I die serving Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) That's such a good call. His friend C.T. Studd, a wealthy British man, he sold everything and he went to India and he started this organization called the World Evangelical Crusade. It's led thousands of people to Christ. This is what he said. He says, too long we've been waiting for another to begin. The time for waiting is past. Should such men as we fear, before the whole world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we dare to trust our God. And we will do it with his joy and unspeakable singing in our hearts, with a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in a man. And so often we live trusting man, don't we? Our security is in our retirement fund. Our security is in our mortgage. It's in our job. It's in our family. It's in our reputation. I want to trust in God far more. Let me ask you this question. In your life, have you gotten off the wall? Has the calling of God in your life been something where you faced opposition and assumed it was him and abandoned that? Are you living for the American dream? Are you living for that treasure buried in a field? It's no sacrifice at all. There is no time to waste. Like we, we live in a, a valley where people need Christ so bad, where the darkness is so dark, and we are the light of the world, and the call that we have is so beautiful. In 2006, a shooter entered a one-room school full of Amish girls, and he opened fire, killing 10. 
This killer was tormented by the death of his daughter and he blamed God and he had unforgiveness in his heart and he took it out on these other girls. The Amish responded differently. They lavished love and forgiveness upon their families of the shooter who committed suicide after he killed the girls. They went to their home. They brought gifts. They prayed for them. They offered forgiveness. And then they went to the funeral of the man who shot their daughters as a sign of forgiveness to him. You see, their calling is to be agents of peace and agents of forgiveness. And they got right back on the wall. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you give us the courage of Nehemiah, God. God, I pray that we would be a people, the sheep amongst wolves, God, that put our faith and trust fully in our God. Lord, that we would see great things happen in this valley, God, that just like the early church, we would accept opposition, God, we would expect it, And God, that we would live for the kingdom that far greater than this kingdom, Lord. I pray that we would be a people, God, that are willing to sacrifice much. Our time, our lives, our comfort. God, that we would be a people that truly disciple. God, help us to not look for shortcuts to discipleship. Help us to not look for shortcuts in serving the needy in our city and in our world. Help us to not be people that simply give our money. Help us be people that actually step in. God, help us be like Nehemiah. Give us courage, Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have. We love being your children, God. Thank you for that treasure in the field that we have found. God, we know it's worth surrendering everything, and we willingly give it up to you because we trust you, and we love you, and we live for you. Thanks for your word, Jesus. Amen.